This is The Guardian. Today, a new cabinet and a new approach to Prime Minister's questions. The first 48 hours of the Liz Truss Premiership. The whirlwind began on Monday. Liz Truss was announced as Britain's new Prime Minister and immediately promised to deliver tax cuts, economic growth and a solution to the energy crisis. I will deliver on the energy crisis, dealing with people's energy bills, but also dealing with the long-term issues we have on energy supply. On Tuesday, she made a dash to Scotland in a private plane to Balmoral to officially receive her invitation from the Queen to form a new government. Uh, Becoming Prime Minister up in Balmoral in the last few minutes, taking on an in-tray perhaps bigger than any Prime Minister, maybe since Margaret Thatcher, maybe since the Second World War. uh, Then it was back to London to make her first speech at a soggy lectern in Downing Street. Dressed in a sombre black skirt suit, Against a grey sky and gloomy rain clouds overhead, Prime Minister Truss addressed the nation. I have just accepted Her Majesty the Queen's kind invitation to form a new government. A bit wooden, maybe, but triumphant. And from there, she began a brutal reshuffle. There is not one cabinet minister that supported Rishi Sunak in the contest. What that will show the party is that Liz Truss, like Boris Johnson before her, demands loyalty above all else. A top team more diverse than ever before, but more right-wing than any in at least a generation. And all of them, for now at least, Liz loyalists. Today, she will announce an energy package worth tens of billions of pounds to protect the public from crippling gas and electricity bills. But can she fix a country in crisis? And how will it define her leadership? From The Guardian, I'm Nosheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, 48 hours of power. What does it tell us about Liz Truss's new government? Aubrey Allegretti, you're a political correspondent at The Guardian, and you were sitting in the press gallery of the House of Commons watching the spectacle of Liz Truss's first Prime Minister's questions unfold. How did it all begin for her? It's always a really special moment to be there for a a first or a last PMQs for a Prime Minister. And Liz Truss had a sort of cadre around her, Penny Morden, waiting on one side, uh, the new Commons leader, and on the other side, the new Deputy Prime Minister, Therese Coffey. They sort of clear a space for her. There's quite a lot of anticipation building. The chamber starts to get louder with the murmuring as people wait for her to enter. And then as she did, there's this moment where all the Tory MPs sort of obviously give her a big cheer to welcome her in. bolster her, get her sort of feeling confident and up for a fight and they're waving their order papers around so really sort of setting the scene for for a a good sort of bruising PMQs between her and Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, 
I'm honoured to take my place as Prime Minister in this House and to take on responsibility at a vital time for our country. I am determined to deliver for everybody across okay, so the United States. How did Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition, approach her? Was he on the attack straight away? So obviously there's only one big story in town at the moment and one big priority for the government initially, at least in this first week, and that's about tackling the rising, rising energy bills. So Keir Starmer laser-focused on that because he knows that's exactly what voters are most interested in. And there has been really a, a sort of gulf in the in the amount of information that we're getting from Team Trust about what those specific plans are. So he was pushing her for answers, particularly around how she was going to cost this kind of plan that we're told could cost up to 170 billion, so huge amounts of money that we're talking about here. Well, I look forward to tomorrow's statement, but the money's got to come from somewhere. Uh, and she, she knows that every single pound in excess profits she chooses not to tax is an extra pound on borrowing that working people will be forced to pay back for decades to come. That's the true cost of her choice to protect oil and gas profits, isn't it? So he was suggesting, first of all, that she should push for a windfall tax, a policy that the government initially opposed under Boris Johnson, but then was forced into quite a staggering U-turn on and has proved very popular with voters. So Starmer questioned who is going to be paying for this huge package that Trust is due to announce, whether it's the taxpayer for generations to come or through higher taxes on energy companies. Aubrey, why is this issue such a clear dividing line? Well, Labour know that this is a really potent attack line for them because it's something that is A, really popular with voters, B, a clear dividing line between the Labour Party and the government, which doesn't want to be seen as pro-raising taxes, particularly under the new leadership of Liz Truss, and C, because it's uncomfortable territory for the government to be forced to answer questions on something that it hasn't actually outlined fully yet, which is the full extent of the cost of this energy programme that's going to essentially cap people's bills we're told by around £200 and £500 a month. Mr Speaker, it's extraordinary that not only is the Prime Minister refusing to extend the windfall tax, she's also choosing to hand the water companies polluting our beaches a tax cut. So, very fertile territory for Keir Starmer to go on because he knows how important it is to voters and that Liz Truss isn't able to give all the answers and the answers that she does give won't be the ones that most voters want to hear because they're so keen on this windfall tax. What did you make of the way Liz Truss responded to Starmer and handled the pressure? I think she stuck fairly well to the sort of traditional conservative arguments that she's employed throughout the leadership contest. She obviously ruled out quite categorically a windfall tax being used to pay for this extraordinarily large sum of money. I am against a windfall tax. I believe it is the wrong thing to be, to be putting companies off investing in the United Kingdom just when we need to be growing the economy. And she got a lot of good reception from Conservative MPs. There were moments when Kirstarmer was criticising the Conservatives' record that were potentially quite awkward for somebody who served in the last three governments as well. So you could see in the chamber some Conservative MPs sort of just looking at their feet a bit glumly. But her, her best moments where she managed to rally the most support were where she was attacking Labour. And she was handed a little gift by Theresa May, who was waiting to plant uh, a quite a helpful question for her. Can I ask my right honourable friend, why does she think it is 
that all three female Prime Ministers have been Conservative. It is quite extraordinary, isn't it, that there doesn't seem to be uh, the ability in the Labour Party to find a, uh, a female leader, or indeed a leader who doesn't come from North London. Which went down very well with Conservative MPs. I heard one of them shouting, 3 0. Well, be with Boris Johnson in PMQs, we were used to seeing him sort of enjoy playing both King and Courtchester. He was fond of reeling off unlikely one-liners against Keir Starmer, calling him a great, pointless human bollard and Captain Hindsight. Was there any of that kind of back and forth between Truss and Starmer yesterday? There wasn't. And I mean, that is one of the things that we will obviously miss about PMQs. There is a very serious side to it as well, but there's also the sort of colour, the kind of joust. Uh, and Boris Johnson was certainly very articulate and very colourful with his language. Liz Truss, in comparison, she's not known for being a natural orator, but she did get quite a big cheer for turning one of Keir Starmer's attacks about the sort of same old Conservatives. Well, there's nothing new about a Labour leader who is calling for more tax rises. So it sounds like she basically held her own against the Labour leader, even though I suspect there isn't a lot that can prepare you for PMQs in this way, given that it is a session in which any MP can ask you any question on any aspect of government policy. Aubrey, all that said, how do you think she coped overall? I'd say expectations were pretty low. I mean, she didn't bomb in the TV debates like some Conservatives thought that she would. And she does have plenty of experience at the dispatch box. And I think actually that shone through in sort of small, kind of minuscule but technical things that we find quite interesting. Like, for example, the fact that she closed her red folder where normally she'd have pages of notes about the questions she was probably going to be asked by MPs and how to respond to them. She closed that book about halfway through and she was going completely off the cuff for most of it. Normally as well, a Prime Minister will have their PPSs, their sort of bag carriers, in the row behind them, sort of whispering in their ear, helping them out on answers to questions. She hasn't appointed yet her PPSs. A Cabinet Minister said to me afterwards, that went as well as it could have gone, which probably suggested mm. that they didn't think that there were. it was going to be the most sort of dazzling performance. But I think she did enough to put the criticism to bed, at least for the first couple of weeks, and convince MPs to let her have a go at the job. Not dazzling, but it did seem competent. Yes, exactly. One of Liz Truss's key tasks is to reunite Tory MPs behind her, despite the fact that only a minority initially wanted her as leader. Aubrey, what was the atmosphere like yesterday on the backbenches? So most of her supporters are sort of ebullient and think that she's going to be able to lead the party and sort of put an end to this continued regicide that's plagued it for years now. Supporters of Rishi Sunak, I think, they believe the jury is still out. But ultimately, her most potent line of attack to make sure Conservative MPs stay in line is by reminding them that it's basically either her or Keir Starmer. And if they tried to get rid of her, then they would almost certainly be handing the next election to Keir Starmer. So you didn't know any sort of hiss of hostility on the backbenches today? There is still some antipathy and some trepidation, certainly. And there are those that aren't fully signed up for the project and want to see what she has to say yet, but they're likely to keep their powder dry for now.
Aubrey, the Tory front bench looked very different after this week's reshuffle. Some of Boris Johnson's most prominent ministers were missing. There was no Dominic Raab, no Priti Patel and no Nadine Dorries. Can you tell me about this new look cabinet and who's in it? Yeah, it's really fascinating because Liz Truss was dubbed the sort of continuity candidate of Boris Johnson. And while she has retained some really key figures from his administration, actually the cabinet looks in some ways very different because there are really key figures missing. So ones you mentioned there like Dominic Raab, also Steve Barclay and Grant Shapps, people who were sort of mainstays who used to go out on the morning media round and almost defend what felt like at times the indefensible. However, there are some figures who've been promoted upwards. Therese Coffey's somebody that we saw a little bit of in the last government. This time she's going to be much more front and centre in her role as Deputy Prime Minister and Health Secretary, particularly, I think, trying to show that there's an emphasis on tackling the huge NHS operations backlog and ambulance waiting times. There is also a new Chancellor in the form of Kwasi Kwarteng, and he and uh, the other four great officers of state are not occupied for the first time ever by a white man. It has been pointed out, of course, that a lot of the new cabinets disproportionately went to private or fee-paying schools. So I think that's something that will be questioned, particularly given the sort of focus on education that there will naturally be, given the huge kind of losses to that by children during the COVID pandemic when they were forced to be homeschooled. So it's going to be a really interesting cabinet. It will probably take a little bit of time to sort of settle in. And I imagine that they will all be scrutinising the plans for the energy price cap. And Liz Truss will want to make sure that they're all absolutely bang on side so that the message goes out clearly that it's something that all the Conservative MPs themselves lower down the rungs and on the back benches need to get behind as well. You mentioned the four great officers of state and the fact that for the first time, as you said, there's not a white man occupying any of those seats of power. Now, I can't help think how bizarre, or let's say interesting, it is how far the Tories have come in the last decade in terms of ethnic diversity. And yet, having black and Asian faces in those posts hasn't exactly led to a more progressive politics, has it? Yes. I mean, on the one hand, Liz Truss is fairly able to claim that she has a government that is far more representative of the country than uh, the Labour front bench. But of course, there does come that question about the diversity of views of that government rather than just what people look like or their background. And that's really, I think, where Rishi Sunak supporters are, are quite concerned. They've been saying that they don't really feel like they, they've got a voice in this new government and they want to make sure that just because the four great offices of state are occupied by people who are non-white men doesn't mean that that should sort of preclude political spectrum also the conservative party being represented at the highest echelons can you tell me a bit more about those appointments who are they and what do we know about them we have uh, Swella Braverman, who's become Home Secretary, obviously taking over from Pretty Patel. She was the Attorney General before and was known for her sort of pretty spiky outbursts. I think she'll be following Pretty Patel in that regard. She's obviously also, along with Liz Truss, very signed up to the Rwanda scheme to remove some asylum seekers who went to the UK, the government says, through illegal or irregular routes. Then you have the new Foreign Secretary, uh, James Cleverly. His main focus, I suppose, will be twofold. And he'll be looking firstly at the Northern Ireland Protocol, which will be very much focused on trying to work with the EU to ensure that there is a negotiated solution to the problems experienced over the borders in, in Northern Ireland, Great Britain, and on the Republic of Ireland as well. 
And he'll also be obviously trying to keep up a united diplomatic front against Russia in Ukraine. We might see that start to struggle during the winter when all European countries and some Western ones as well will struggle with energy bills. And then finally, we have the new chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, the first black chancellor, probably one of the names that's been spoken about for the longest for that role. He's been a bit of a shoe in So he's had several weeks to talk to officials and industry bodies to try and make sure that he does actually hit the ground running on day one and that in the two days between Liz Truss becoming Prime Minister and the energy plan being announced that there is something that is fully costed and will not have any mistakes or cause gripes within the Conservative Party. So it sounds like Liz Truss has appointed a cabinet of loyalist MPs, some of whom have already been called the Greenwich Gang. Kwarteng lives on the same road as Truss in South East London. James Cleverley lives a mile away. What does it say about her plan to unite a Riven Tory party if she's giving the plum jobs to those most loyal to her? It is very much a cabinet of loyalists. And there are MPs that think that that's not a particularly brave decision because it doesn't signify that she has the, the sort of teremity to reach across the party and bring in people that potentially didn't support her in the leadership race. Now, obviously, there were some pretty fundamental dividing lines during the contest. And people like Dominic Raab, for example, described her tax plans as being the equivalent to an electoral suicide note, which gave him short shrift eventually when he was ousted as Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary. But I suppose Rishi Sunak has signalled that he will try and suggest to his supporters that they should fold behind her. He initially, during the contest, declined to say whether he would vote for a Liz Truss budget and then sort of turned around a few days later and suggested that actually he probably would. So I suspect that nobody will want to cause too much trouble for her in the short term because they won't want to be seen as too opportunistic, not accepting the result of the contest. But it's probably when there's another energy price cap hike looming in January that she will face real pressure from that side of the party. Nonetheless, some of the figures lining up behind her do have pretty controversial backgrounds. Theresa Coffey, who is in charge of health, has voted against abortion rights. I'm conscious uh, I have voted against uh, abortion laws. Uh, What I will say is I'm a complete Democrat and that is done. uh, So it's not that I'm seeking to undo. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who takes over business, has little interest, as far as anyone knows, in climate change. Mankind is highly adaptable. And we need to look at more adaptability rather than trying to go back to living in the Stone Age by reducing people's use of energy. It does seem to be a very ideologically led cabinet. Can you see that causing problems a bit further down the line? Certainly any cabinets that are too ideologically led and and can't sort of adjust to the whims of voters in the face of huge public pressure to do something as we saw, for example, with the windfall tax under Boris Johnson, they will really struggle. And so one of the criticisms from MPs was that Boris Johnson's number 10 completely shut them out, that they heard concerns too late, that they were stifled, those built until there was like in a pressure cooker, and then they exploded too late. So Liz Truss will have to show that she's not too ideological, whilst still commanding respect for being somebody who is driven by a set of values and a philosophy, as as she's sort of shown during the leadership contest. In terms of the the key kind of policies that I suppose will underpin that, partly one of the most controversial ones is the Rwanda removal scheme. Now, 
She and Rishi Sunak both signaled they were completely signed up to that and, in fact, wanted to create more schemes with other countries. So I suspect that we'll see quite a lot of action on that. And it's something that the government believes voters very much want to hear. So I expect we'll hear lots on that front in the next few months. In terms of the privatisation of Channel 4, we have a new culture secretary who was famed when she was education secretary briefly before and an education minister before that for trying to incite some sort of culture wars, particularly on the standards of teaching in school and British history and things like that. So it's not necessarily something that the new culture secretary, Michelle Donnellan, will shy away from. So that's who's in. Aubrey, who has Trust axed and what can we read into that? So there are a series of key Boris Johnson allies who've gone. Grant Shapps was one of them. Steve Barclay, who was the health secretary, but before that he was essentially brought in as chief of staff in number 10 to try and steady the ship desperately at the end of Boris Johnson's administration when the wheels were really coming off. And someone like Dominic Raab as well, who was one of the most outspoken Team Rishi supporters and was not just happy to, to support him, but also issue some very direct and cutting attacks on Liz Truss. Some of the cabinet ministers I spoke to who were axed were really surprised at the sort of ideological drive against them. They expected that if they had actually been doing competent work that they may at least still be kept in the government, even if not at a Secretary of State level. But it does, I think, signify that Liz Truss wants people around her who are going to support her, who are going to buttress her in, make sure that she doesn't fall victim to the same sort of attacks as Boris Johnson. But that obviously does mean that she risks then alienating that wing of the party and having too many former senior disgruntled ex-ministers on the back benches can be very dangerous for you. Coming up, who will Liz Truss be relying on most behind the scenes? So Aubrey, as Prime Minister, Liz Truss is not only appointing a cabinet and all her junior ministers, she's also deciding on which advisers and officials she has around her. Can you tell me what we know about them and how important is it in getting those appointments right to being a successful Prime Minister? The main advisor that we heard from Liz Truss during the leadership contest that she was influenced by was this economist, Patrick Minford, who was suggesting that tax cuts, even if they did end up fueling inflation, potentially interest rates as well, that it was worth it in the long term. She has actually had quite a significant clear out of the former number 10 team, the one that stayed with Boris Johnson, and she's brought in a lot of her own aides as well, particularly running the comm side of things. Mark Fulbrook is uh, being brought in as her chief of staff. Mark Fulbrook's quite a controversial character and he's been linked quite closely to Linton Crosby, who obviously helped advise the Boris Johnson government and has advised the Conservative Party in numerous election campaigns before. He uh, was Truss's co-campaign director and he's entering government after a long-term partnership with Crosby as a political consultant. But one of the controversies uh, around his previous work is that he apparently lobbied the UK government on behalf of Libya's controversial parliament. Aubrey, later on today, Truss is expected to deliver a package of measures to tackle the cost of energy. I, as Prime Minister, will take immediate action to help people with the cost of their energy bills. And I will be making an announcement to this House. How big a moment is this for her already? 
All the moments so far, her trip to the palace, her reshuffle, her speech in Downing Street and her first PMQs, they've all been fairly scripted, well rehearsed and executed without too much trouble. But Thursday is the moment really where the huge amount of expectation on her that's where she will be judged the most. And that's how she addresses this huge issue of people spiralling energy bills. Now, there are different suggestions that have been made. Labour have obviously put forward their plan, and it may be that she goes quite a bit further than that. But it'll be very, very complicated because she sort of has that trade-off between trying to help as many people as possible while still staying true to her mantra of not giving handouts and making sure that people who are the most vulnerable and on the lowest incomes are supported, while acknowledging, as the former Chancellor Nadim Zahawi did, that middle-class and middle-income earners will also be severely affected by this price rise. Aubrey, first impressions count. So what do Liz Truss's first 48 hours in power say about her? The first 48 hours have been really interesting to watch, but they haven't given us huge insight yet into how she is going to claw back control of the Conservative Party because her coronation has seemed like a foregone conclusion for so long. And there has been very little to disrupt the sort of well-laid plans that her campaign's been working on for weeks. However, what we can see is that she's clearly still very ideologically driven and she's going to bring that into Downing Street that she's got this new raft of advisors that I think she wants to sort of clear all the barnacles off the boat and try and present this as a new government try and get away with what Boris Johnson fairly successfully managed which was sort of dispelling the assertion that the Conservatives had already been in power for nine years and that this was some kind of continuation of that Conservative MPs were saying to me this week that that was one of the most compelling arguments that Labour could make and if Liz Truss didn't counter it enough early on, then they'd be in real trouble. Aubrey, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Aubrey Allegretti. You can follow his reporting, listen to our sister podcast, Politics Weekly, and read more from our politics team at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser and Klitsia Sala. Sound design is by Solomon King. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Homer Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.